If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and I'm extremely excited about our guest this week. Meet Olivier Pommel, the co-founder and CEO of Datadog, the essential monitoring platform for cloud applications. Prior to Datadog, Olivier had held a number of software and engineering positions. Most recently, he was VP of technology for wireless generation, building data systems for K-12 teachers and growing his team to 100 of the best engineers in New York City. In 2010, he founded and started Datadog, a true pioneer in the DevOps category that processes trillions of records a day. Datadog IPO'd in 2019 and quickly became the fourth cloud software company that year to debut and reach at least a $10 billion valuation. Since then, the company's performed beautifully. It has grown to exceed $27 billion. So let's welcome Olivier. Hi, Olivier. Hi. I want to dive just right in and ask, walk us through the beginning of you thinking through the idea for Datadog and launching it. Yeah, so you know, it's one of those companies that actually came from pain that was felt by my you know, co-founder and I. So we actually used to work together before in a number of places. In the last place, which was a company, the education software company, I was running the development team, he was running the operations team. And we had this interesting thing where we knew each other very well, we were very good friends. We hired everybody on our teams, you know, we tried not to hire any jerks. And, and we still ended up you know, a few years down the road with development that hated operations, operations that hated development, finger pointing all day long. And so the starting point for us was you know, there's, there's got to be a better way of doing that. You know, so to get those teams to actually look at the same data, speak the same language, work together instead of working against each other. So for somebody out there listening who's not as technical as you are, explain in like the simplest fashion that you can what Datadog really does. Yes. Yeah, so what we do is you know, we do monitoring and analytics for cloud application. And what it means is you know, anytime you stream a movie online or you, know, you, you pay with a credit card in a coffee shop, uh, what really happens is you're going to, uh, or your transaction is going to go through hundreds of components, and these components are going to involve you know, thousands or tens of thousands of servers in the data center or in the cloud. And so what we do is we make sure that the engineers who build those services and run them actually understand what's going on, how these services actually work in real life, uh, so that they know if there's an issue and they can get ahead of the next issue. At the core, that's what we do, and we sell to engineers, basically. What was it like for everybody listening to decide to go into business with a close friend? How did you really process that? Yeah, so we, you know, we had worked together in different places. So, we, so we, we knew each other very, very well. We were very good friends. We had a, um, a good sense of each other. And it was very natural for us to actually start a business together. We can talk about that more if you want, but it, it does take some upkeep you know, to keep that going on you know, as you run a company and as you go through all of the various highs and lows of doing that. But the starting point was very sound. I don't think... Again, with a straight face, uh, give the advice to others who say, oh, before you start a company with someone, wait until you've known them for at least 10 years. I think we were lucky to have that. 
I'm in business with some of my closest friends also, and I think it's a really good position. You also know each other's strengths and weaknesses so well. So let's go back to those early days as you have this vision, 2010. Do you think 2010 was an important moment? Like, did something happen that had happened in the decade prior that primed it to be the perfect time for you to launch Datadog? Were you early, were you late, or do you think you were perfectly on time? Well, it turns out we were perfectly on time, and, and that's not something that we could have known, obviously, you know, when we started this. What we saw is there were really the, the convergence of two things. And the first one was applications were built mostly as a service. You know, so there was a rise of SaaS, and consumers started using you know, web applications at scale. You know, everybody was using Google, all, all sorts of other things. What it meant was the way software was built uh, was changing quite a bit. It went from software is something that is shipped on a CD and you know it gets developed over two years and there's a very straightforward way of planning development and the shipping of the software to software is a thing that is shipped every two weeks and it changes all the time and and that completely changed the way companies think about building software. You know that was the rise of the rise of what's called the the agile uh, methodologies for building software. So that was one thing, you know, and that's what ended up having this this moment where developers and, and operations started fighting so much because they had all of these changes that needed to happen all the time and you know a new way of doing things had to emerge that was one thing the other thing that happened at the time was you know the public cloud started happening you know in 2010 uh, amazon web services were there was still pretty much a toy you know real companies would not build on aws you know at the time but it was really a technology that was starting to be to um, you know, again, Holder was really intriguing to, to many new companies. So the conflation of those two things uh, is what made us you know, successful at the right time. Obviously, the public cloud has been a lot more transformative and a lot more successful than we could dream at the time. Something that ended up changing everything in the way software is built and services are, are operated and IT in general is working. Uh, and that we could have foreseen at the time. If you rewind and think about getting your first customers on and uh, just... For, for, for other amazing tech founders out there listening, you know, getting your first customers is hard. How did you approach that and what made it work? Yeah, so I would start, you know, the first thing we did that was a bit different uh, was that before we, when we started the company, even though my co-founder and I are both engineers, for the first six months, we didn't write a line of code. And it took almost physical restraint, you know, because you're an engineer, you start a company, all you, the one thing you want to do is start building something. Instead of doing that, we basically talked to whoever would listen to ask what their problems were and try to figure out what we could do for them. What this meant was, first of all, we got a very good understanding of the problem, uh, but also we had a lot of people that you know, were following us and were looking to see what we would do. And out of those people, we could find some that would be receptive to be our first customers. And then as soon as we had like the very first version of a, of a product, we started going to community conferences. Like you know, there was this, this whole DevOps movement that was taking off at the time. And they had all these little community conferences, like I would say grassroots conferences, not big things. Um, and we would go there with, uh, with our laptops and we would demo actually the software on the laptops all day long. And that was a very good way to get in front of people and, and you know, start maybe having some of them come back and ask to use it and, and, and go from there. I would say it was very, the focus on spending as much time as possible with potential customers as opposed to spending time writing the software itself. That's really good advice, which is rather than diving right in to start building something, obsessively, obsessively listen to your customers. How did you think about how to price it? You were building something fundamentally new. How did you think about pricing? Yeah, so that was a good question because there was not a 
very widely accepted price for what we were doing at the time, like this was a new, new category. So what we did is we tried to figure out how much our customers were pricing, were paying for other parts of their infrastructure. You know, so basically what's their cloud bill like? Um, and we tried to figure out how, what fraction of that we should be, roughly speaking, to give us an idea of what to shoot for in magnitude. And then we, we found a way that's a good and easy proxy to the size of this bill because we can't just say, oh, pay us you know, 5% or 10% or 1% of your cloud bill, and that doesn't work. So we had to find another good proxy for that that was simple enough. Like it was very important to us to make sure the price was very, very, very easy to understand. So now when you walk back you know, to what matters into, into pricing, and we've you know, understood that after, I mean, when we initially priced the product, it was not that scientific. You know, we, we tried that, we say, okay, obviously, hopefully we're not completely wrong about it, and then let's go with it. And it turns out it, it worked and it was good not to overthink it. But over time, as we've you know, you know, changed pricing and we have added more products and, and more things that to, to the mix, uh, the things that matter are to get a price that naturally scales with the value you give your customer. It's good to have um, a way to charge your customers that doesn't require you to go back to them, that just scales with the usage as long as uh, that remains aligned with the value to give them, otherwise they get upset, obviously. And we found that it's important to make sure customers have controls over the price. They have to feel like, you know, there's, if they don't think the value aligns with what they're paying, they can actually, they have the knobs to adjust it. That's a very important thing. Again, that goes back to being incredibly customer centric. You are known for being incredibly customer centric and it's a real value that I am sure you've embedded across the entire culture of Datadog. How did you think about making customer centricity such a value? Was there anything that you did culturally to make sure it constantly is being reinforced for young companies out there thinking about how do we, how do we make that real? What does that look like? Yeah, so the first thing I will say is uh, it was actually born out of necessity, you know, because when we started the company, and we can you know, discuss that some more, but we, it was hard for us to fundraise initially. And so what we didn't have was a long line of VCs beating down our door, uh, telling us we're geniuses and you know, asking us to take their money. And so we were absolutely not tempted to believe we were geniuses and we had everything figured out. As a result, we were really scared of not getting the problem right. And we spent as much time as possible with the customers, you know, which is the thing I, I discussed initially. And as we kept building product and shipping product, and uh, we kept that you know, front and center in the way we, we build the company. So we focused on the problem first and the solution later, as opposed to jumping to a solution and then trying to shoehorn it into uh, various problems that our customers might have. The way we've you know, made that work in the company is you have to maximize the, uh, the exposure across the organization to um, customers. So some parts of the organizations are going to spend a lot of time with customers anyway, like your sales, marketing, like yes, you, your job is to be outside in front of the customer. But when you think of engineers in particular, we went out of our way to have engineers a part of support rotation, where they actually solve customer issues, to have engineers go to trade shows, where they actually demo the software to, to customers all day. You know, so an engineer would go to a trade show, they would stay in a booth, and they would make five minutes demo in a, in a loop basically with customers for the, for the whole day. And it's a great way for people to build empathy for customers because they see, first of all, they see how customers react to what they show. They see what lands, what doesn't land, what's interesting, what's not interesting, the questions they get. And they, they, they get to build this, this sense, have this appreciation for spending time with a customer, which is something that is important. Of course, as you scale, it gets more and more difficult you know, because there's many more employees and many more customers and you know, the logistics of it become very difficult. 
uh, but that's something that we, we, we keep as we go. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about you built the, you know, the entire company out of New York City. How do you think about New York City as a tech hub? And what did that look like over the last decade as, I mean, you're part of helping build and, and advance that ecosystem dramatically. How did you think about New York City being your headquarters? Yeah, so when we started, the investors that really understood what we did were not in New York for the most part. And the investors in New York, when we pitch them, so usually they like what we showed, et cetera, and then we showed a competition slide where they realized they knew none of the competitors and they were, it was probably not their deal. They were probably out of their uh, depth with that. So it was very difficult for us to, uh, to fundraise initially. And the, the West Coast investors were very wary of investing in an early company that wasn't proven far away from, from where they are. I think they've changed. I mean, now they're doing it, but at the time it was something that was not happening so much. So it was very difficult. On the flip side, what it did is it really forced us to focus on the problem, which is what I mentioned earlier, and spend as much time with customers as possible, which was a blessing, really. I mean, it's yes, it was hard, but when I compare us to the, uh, all of the other competitive companies that were started at the same time, and that started with 10 times the funding we had, they, they all had that in common in that they thought they had it figured out while they hadn't. And I think that's one of the ways we were able to build a, a better company uh, in part because of the difficulties we had initially. It also forced us to build a company that was efficient. You know, so uh, as we took the company public, the, the capital efficiency of Datadog is something that really resonated with investors. And that's something that comes back again from this difficulty fundraising initially. Got it. Um, I want you to give us a quick um, insight of like, what when you, you say those days were hard, what was like a moment that you look back on and you're like, that was a really rough day, you know, to be a publicly traded founder of a $27 billion company. That's, that's beyond impressive. What was the day where you're like, Oh shit, this is hard. What did that look like? Yeah. Well, you know, there's this moment. So when you start a company, as you know, you know, we're super excited when you start, like it's a, Oh my God, we're starting something is going to be great. We're going to be our own bosses. And, you know, I would say after three months, that wears off a little bit because you, know, you realize it's going to be hard. And then I would say for us, it was uh, six to ninth month in. We, we had no money, we had no customers, we had no product. I think at the time it, f- it felt pretty bad. And you have this moment where you ask yourself, am I just being foolish? Like, is it, you know, is it real? Or? So there's this valley, you know, you need to cross and believe enough in the fact that you have the right problem and that there's a real need so that you keep, you keep pushing and, and try to connect the two ends. Those were dark days. Thankfully though, after that summer came back and we had some version of our product to show and we got some people interested in it and that, that got us to, uh, to keep going. I would say a key part of uh, keeping the company going even when it's tough is to have uh, two co-founders and we also had a few more people join us, uh, very early employees at the time uh, that also wanted to work with us without any salary, which is rare and uh, commendable. The good thing about that is when there's several of you in the room, your laws are not going to happen typically exactly at the same time. So there's always, always someone to pick up the other, which is very helpful. That's awesome. What is the way you give yourself a pep talk when things get really hard? Because anything done as superbly as you do it is hard. What's the pep talk you give yourself that allows you to kind of get back in the ring and go back to work? From the beginning to and as you scale, like there's a never-ending stream of things that go wrong. You know, so the uh, the idea is to always focus that on what we can do to improve. And, and thankfully, there's no shortage of work and things that need to be done. 
that it's easy to find ways to, uh, to reorient your energy. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. What do you think about when it's Sunday night and you're looking at the week and you're excited? Like something is waking you up and you're very excited about something that's going on at Data Dog. What, what, what is that? And I should say the, the thing that wakes me up is the one-year-old um, <laughs> right now. So uh, without a fault, you know, good thing is he sleeps like a, uh, like clockwork, but he also wakes up like clockwork. So um, no, but seriously though, what, what excites me is, is to build. What excites me is everything that we still have to do. And, and when I say build, it means software, but it also means teams. Uh, I, I like to think of the company as a collection of systems, and that's my you know, engineer side, I would say. HR is a, is a set of systems and hiring and you know, promoting and uh, these are sets of systems. Uh, selling to customers, uh, supporting customers, these are sets of systems. And I like to think of those and the new systems we can put in place and how we can improve and how we understand how they're working and not working. I think that's the, uh, the thing that you know, uh, motivates me to, to show up and, and, and keep doing more. It's such an engineering mindset, but it's such a brilliant way to view a company, which is a company is simply a collection of systems and making sure each of the systems runs thoughtfully. As you think about HR, what's your favorite interview question? What's the one that you like to ask where you can kind of see through the noise and really get to look at somebody fully and like help them be seen? What's the question you like to ask people to decide if they should be at Datadog? The most interesting part of interviews to me are the, the questions I get asked by the, uh, the interviewees, the candidates. So I ask them, so anything I can tell you? And from what they ask and where they take it and you know, how interested they are and what aspects of, the, of the, the, the job they pick up on, I think that's where I learn the most about them. And also that's where I learn how, you know, how well they're prepared and how interested they are in a company and things like that. How has being an engineer impacted your leadership style? If you were to connect the dots between those two, how, what do you make of that? Yeah, so I mean, obviously the first thing is th thinking of everything as systems and how you observe those systems. I think it's also aligned with what the company does, which is good. The, the, the other way we, we like to run the company is, actually I like to run the company is, I actually like to get a lot of data, but not aggregated data. I like, to, I like to get all of the raw data points. So for example, I'm still subscribing to the mailing list that show our customer support issues. I'm getting updates from individual deals, you know, from our sales team. I'm seeing updates from the various product teams in terms of what they've done over the last week. Obviously, I don't read everything, right? I sample all of that. But I still see those. And the, what, is, what helps me with is, it helps me with pattern matching and training myself to understand what's actually happening in the company. And that's usually fairly different from what transpires into the aggregate numbers and everything else. It gives more color to it. It helps understand what goes inside those numbers and it helps ask more questions. I love it. I basically to synthesize that you're really mindful about what kind of what kind of data and content you're consuming and how you consume that because it allows you to pattern match 
to be able to make sure you're asking the right questions. It helps just stay closer to the problems in a way where uh, you, you can't potentially miss them. If you had to fast forward 10 years, given that you have such a specific viewpoint on technology, infrastructure, data, and if you had to make predictions around DevOps or cloud monitoring, what is obvious to you from like where your hands are on the reins of running this amazing big business? What's super obvious if you had to make one or two bets? Well, what's super obvious is, like, look, every single company is turning into a software company right now. So the, the footprint and the impact of software is growing and the number of people who work on software is growing. You know? And you know, if you fast forward 10 years, that you're going to see such an explosion of complexity there, you know, because you have all these applications that are being built and changed and all of companies competing based on these applications all the time. And so when it comes back to our field, like we think that there's going to be so much more value to be had by helping the humans understand just what's going on. You know, so what, what are we building? Who is it working? How do, how do all of these components come together and, and how can we keep changing those and serving our customers and competing with that other company that is right in front of us? I think that's, uh, from where we are today, we're just scratching the surface. Uh, we think it's going to be one of the biggest explosions over time. And we don't see that so much as a problem of you know, cloud or monitoring. We see that as a problem of complexity, basically so much more is going to be built and it's going to be so much more complex uh, and involve so many more people and change so, more, so much more often that someone needs to be there to solve that complexity and that's us basically. Olivia, I could talk to you forever. I want to end on two quick fire round questions here. What was the coolest pinch me moment of all of Datadog's experience? And again, you have to remember everybody looking at you, you're this amazing founder, engineer, entrepreneur, who now is you know, at the helm of a massive business that's making all of our lives much better. What was the moment where you even pinched yourself and said, I can't believe that just happened, I'm so excited? Well, actually it was a small thing. We were still fairly small, we were still, I think 15 people. And I was on vacation with my wife in Venice in Italy. And at dinner, we sat across from this Japanese family and the the, the father there was wearing my company's t-shirt. So not only did he pick up the t-shirt from my company, he also put it in his suitcase to go on vacation to, uh, to Italy and then wore it for dinner. Um, in the, that was amazing to me. So that was, again, small thing, but um, it felt real at the time. Oh, that is so awesome. And really just such a good small moment. My last question is, other than Datadog, if there's one startup or one cool idea that you've heard about recently um, that you're really excited about, it could be a small startup, it could be a new app you're using. What's one thing that outside of Datadog you're really pumped about? There's one that actually is based in New York and is doing something that's pretty exciting right now. And the company is called uh, Hugging Face. Uh, and what they do is natural language processing. And it's a, it's a field that is completely exploding. You know, it's basically having computers understand and generate uh, speech and text that is human-like. And it's completely exploding in a way that's actually pretty scary, you know, in that you can, you can with, a, with, a, with a computer, you can generate, like you can write articles that are almost undifferentiable from what can be written by a journalist. Wow, that is incredible. Um, thank you. Um, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody that's listening, if you are not already up to speed about Datadog, you can learn more at datadog.com. And join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel.